0: All right, we've been uh, looking at the feasts, the holidays, the biblical holidays that God shaped and then instructed for his people to keep as a way to prepare for today. Today on the Christian calendar is the highest and holiest day of the year. Um, And so we've been looking at at the feasts um, that God instructed and today we're going to look at the eighth one, the eighth and final uh, holiday that, that God gave. Um, sometimes it's called the Feast of Tabernacles, other times it's called the Feast of Booths. Sometimes it's the, the Jewish people call it Sukkot. Um, this, this feast is celebrated in, the, in that fall cluster of feasts and... I can guarantee you, because of what God's Word says, that in the future, every blood-bought follower of Jesus Christ will celebrate this feast. Because in Zechariah 14, um, when it talks about the world to come, the new heavens and the new earth, which is what this feast points to, It points to what we know at the end of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22. And God again pitches his tent among us and dwells among us in the new heavens and the new earth. But Zechariah tells us that we will all, the Gentiles as well as the Jews, will go to Jerusalem uh, to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And so um, this feast points to, to the great hope to where the whole biblical story is going. Uh, let's turn in our Bibles to Leviticus 23. It just cracks me up that on Easter we're going to Leviticus. Um, I think it's found on page 99 in your Bible if you have a blue one like this. Yep, 99. And we love to stand for God's word, so if that's something you can do, please stand. And you see that uh, subtitle maybe in your Bible called the Festival or Feast of Tabernacles. We're going to actually start reading at verse 39. So beginning with the 15th day of the 7th month after you have ga- gathered the crops of the, of the land, celebrate the festival to the Lord, this festival, for 7 days. So eighth day, it's an eight-day feast, but the seven days that they, you celebrate, the first day is a day of Sabbath rest, and the eighth day is also a Sabbath. On the first day, you are to take branches from luxuriant trees, from palms, willows, and other leafy trees, and you are to rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. Celebrate this as a festival to the Lord for seven days each year. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come Celebrate it in the seventh month and live in temporary shelters for seven days. All native-born Israelites are to live in such shelters so your descendants will know that I, had, that I had the Israelites live in temporary shelters when I brought them out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And so Moses announced to the Israelites the appointed festivals of the Lord. This is God's word. You can be seated. So the first, the first festival, Passover, celebrates redemption. God getting them out of slavery through a lamb. And it's easy to see how Christ is the fulfillment of that. He gets us out of slavery by being the lamb. Uh, the next one is Pentecost, which that is the day when Moses got from God Torah. God's word. And he brought it down the mountain to the people. And we know that that was fulfilled um, after Jesus ascended and he poured out his spirit uh, because that's what Pentecost celebrates, uh, Revelation. And then we come to the feast that we are today and let me just show you a PowerPoint because I think We need to see what this feast celebrates. Uh, It celebrates that period right after they get delivered where they live 40 years in the wilderness, God's people. And I love this picture because this is a season where where they all lived in tents. And God said, you have your tent. I'm going to pitch my tent right in the middle of your tents. In fact, that's what the word sukkah in Hebrew, which is why they call it Sukkot, it simply means a hut or a tent. And look at God's instruction in verse 42. He says basically, the way that I want you to have this part of the story pushed into you so it changes you, I don't want to just give you a sermon. I don't want to just give you a lecture. I don't want to just give you words on a page to read, but for one whole week, I want you to step away from your comfortable living, your comfortable house, and I want you to live in a tent. To be reminded of, of, of the part of our family in their, in that part of the story, how they lived in tents and how I, your Lord, lived in a tent among them. And this part of the story, whether you've thought about it this way or not, not only celebrates when God's people lived in tents and God lived in his tent for those 40 years in the desert, but it also celebrates is a foretaste of heaven. Because those 40 years, God's people got a foretaste of heaven. Now, you might not think of heaven this way, uh, because we so often think of heaven as this comfortable, worry-free, problem-free existence but scripturally, heaven is when God makes his home in our midst and we behold his glory. And, and what this part of the story teaches us is that even the most barren, desolate place can be heaven. I dream about taking all of you to Israel sometime. Because when I take people to Israel, we go to this part of the world. We go to the Sinai, where it is so intensely hot. It literally takes your breath away. And you, you start hiking into, into this desert, and it doesn't take you very long, where you start to think, if I was out here too long, without outside help, I'd die here. And what I want us to see in this picture, because here's the profound irony of Israel's 40 years in the desert, that it's here in this hot, barren wasteland that they got a foretaste of heaven. Because the deeper they went into that barren place, the more intense was their experience of God to the point where every day... God was bringing water to them through a rock. He's raining manna down from heaven. And he's tangibly present with them where he lives among them in a tent. And he walks before them as their shepherd. Let me tell you, that's heaven. Heaven is when we are totally dependent on God for everything. And God is intimately acquainted with all of our ways intangibly caring for us. So as they celebrated this holiday for eight days, they were stepping away from comfort to be reminded that heaven is not my comfortable home, heaven is not making lots of money, heaven is not having a pain-free, pleasurable life, Heaven is not the perfect vacation. Heaven is not having uh, the perfect marriage or the perfect family or the perfect life. Heaven is this place where we have nothing, but because God is among us, we lack nothing. Can you give testimony to this today? In your desert, in your dry in barren season of life where you can give testimony to how that was a foretaste of heaven because God moved in and made his home in in, in a way that was just profound and real and awesome. I don't know why, but the the last month especially, I have been confronted with so many deserts. There are so many in this family that are walking through deserts. Wednesday night at, at our prayer, there was a young lady who just started praying about her dad who's dying. And I literally had to interrupt her, not because I was wondering about what she was praying about, that if, if her dad was dying, but I couldn't believe how she prayed, what she was praying about. She had such hope and faith and courage and peace as she prayed for her father. That's what I'm talking about. In our deserts, where we experience this peace that passes all understanding because God is with us. A few weeks ago, I had a hospital call. And because this person has come to Crossroads from day one, and he presented uh, a prayer request Uh, To me days before, I was a little bit concerned, but I did not know what I was walking into. And what I walked into, I'll just put it this succinctly, it was probably one of the ugliest realities I've ever stepped foot into. I watched Tom Cronline pass away. And I stood next to his wife. And it was a long process. And it was ugly. But out of that ugliness, I have never witnessed something so profoundly beautiful emanating from Kim. As she's talking to her husband, and then talking to God. And and, and the faith and the real and the raw all mixed together is beautiful. Because God was in that desert in a profoundly real way. And when it was all over, I had to go back to the room to uh, fetch a few things for Kim. And it was strange. I, I walked into that room and there's the body of Tom and just me. And, and, and I looked at Tom's body and, and my thought was, this guy's with Jesus right now. He's with Jesus. And see what this, this, this feast uh, pushed in, in, into their hearts, this idea that, that God is with us in our, in, in our deserts and they had... Uh, seven to eight days to, to participate in this and to experience this and to be reminded of this, uh, and that someday uh, the new Jerusalem is going to come down and it's going to marry itself with the earthly Jerusalem, and God is going to again pitch his tent in our midst and dwell amongst us. They had that, but we have texts like 2 Corinthians 12. Where Paul describes his desert, and and literally he begs God, he says, God, would you please, would you please take this away? But God says to Paul, He says, My grace is sufficient, for my power is made complete in weakness. Do you know that? That God's power is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul says the most amazing thing. He says, I will boast about my weakness because it's here that Christ's power rests. And because some of the other translations say that it's in weakness that Christ's power dwells, I went to that word this week wondering if it was going to be this Greek word, skene, which literally means to, uh, to tent or to make your home. And to my surprise, it wasn't just skene, it was episkene. In other words, what Paul is saying is that it's in weakness and in our deserts where Christ doesn't just dwell, but he he ultimately dwells. He, He ultimately pitches his tent and makes his home. In that place. And see, this is what the Feast of Tabernacles celebrates. And Christ is the fulfillment of this feast. Just like he's the fulfillment of all the feasts. Uh, John 1, uh, verse 17, John says, And Jesus tabernacled amongst us towards "skene." In other words, Jesus came to the world and and he pitched his his tent among us and we beheld him, we beheld his glory. And, And John says Jesus left the bosom of his father. He left his father's side. He left comfort and he pitches his tent in this dry and weary world and he moves towards us in our desert. And it's there that he comes and makes his home. And it's through this that we behold his glory. Which is why I think God gives this special instruction for this holiday. If you look at verse 40 of Leviticus 23, God says, gather branches from the luxuriant trees, namely the palm tree, and I want you to rejoice before me. That's a very interesting command. Because it's the only uh, holiday where God commands his people to make joy into a verb. He says, during this holiday, I want you to be joy. I want you to do joy. For seven days, I want you to unleash joy. And here's the thing. If you ask a Jew to be joyful, um, you're going to get something that's pretty passionate and almost raucous. They're not going to just hold little branches in their hand with a smile on their face. For seven days, they're going to be loud, they're going to be passionate, they're going to sing songs, they're going to wave those, those palm branches with all they have. So just imagine this feast, imagine every year you and your family descend on Jerusalem with thousands of others for this week-long camping out party, um, and, and God's one command pretty much. is not just live in a tent, camp out, but it's also be joyful, be happy. Because God is going to do this again. God is going to come and pitch his tent among us again. Now, because this feast also comes at the very end of the harvest and celebrates the end of the harvest season, and and, and the new planting season is about to begin immediately following the feast. And then also add to this that in this part of the world, water is extremely scarce. Israel only gets rain during a two month window in the winter. And it needs to get that rain and it needs to get a lot of rain during that window or else there's going to be famine. So a big part of this holiday as they prepare themselves for the next harvest season is to pray for rain. And God tells them uh, before they come into the land, look, you're leaving a land that's well irrigated by the Nile where you just get to slosh around in all this water Uh, But I'm taking you to a land that that you're going to have to look up and trust me to provide the water. And so this is why they call rain living water. Because it's water that comes from God. In Hebrew, it's maim kaim. And it's 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 also in time that Maim Ka'im becomes a metaphor for God because they, they said this is what God was to uh, this is what God provided us when we are in the wilderness. He gave us water, he gave us spring water from a rock, he gave us Maim Ka'im, but even more than that, they thought to themselves, no, this is what God actually was to us when we were in the desert. He was living water to us. And so throughout the week then, this became a, a week where uh, they'd ra- uh, wave these palm branches and they realized that when they waved the palm branches with enough force that it sounded like rain. So they waved the palm branches and then they'd shout, which means, Lord, save us, which is their way of saying, God, send us mime kai'in. Now, something that also evolved over time during the Feast of Sukkot or the Feast of Tabernacles, and this has already started well before the time of Jesus, is that every day in the temple, which is where people would like to uh, congregate um, and and just bring that raucous, passionate, waving the palm branches, saying, Hoshanah, well, every day in the temple was a water ceremony. And for the first seven days, the high priest would walk into the midst of the crowd in the courtyard and he'd take this pitcher and he'd bring it to the altar and he'd stand over the altar and he would turn it like he was pouring it, but nothing would come out. But then on the eighth day, the last and greatest day of the feast, the high priest would take a pitcher and he'd go all the way down to the pool of Siloam where where there was a uh, spring um, the spring of Gihon, which means a gusher, and he'd take Maim uh, Kaim and fill his pitcher with it. He'd walk up to the temple. The crowds would be going crazy, shouting, Hoshanah, waving their palm branches. He'd make his way into the courtyard. He'd go up to the, temp- to the altar. And this time he'd walk around the altar seven times. And also on the altar would be another pitcher full of wine. And he'd lift the water, the maim kaim, and the wine in the air, and there'd be silence. And then into the silence, he would pour the water and the wine on the altar, and people would privately pray, God, send maim kaim, send us living water. In John 7, to. John 7 tells us that Jesus at the feast of tabernacles on the last and greatest day of the feast Jesus shouted out in a loud voice If anyone is thirsty let him come to me and drink Whoever trusts me streams of living water will gush they will gush from within them I don't know when Jesus said this. I don't know the place Jesus said this, but it wouldn't surprise me at all if that Jesus picked that moment when the temple was silent and the priest had the two pictures in in the air when Jesus just from somewhere in the crowd yelled out, I am living water. Come to me. Because this is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus promises to be. This is what Jesus offers us. He offers us living water. He is a fountain of Maim Kaim. And where does this water flow? Well, Isaiah 35, so many texts like this, says the desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness Will rejoice and blossom because water will gush forth in the wilderness, streams in the desert, the burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground of bubbling springs of Maim Kaim. In fact, one of the images in Ezekiel 47 is this little trickle of water that, that starts to flow from, the, from God's house, and this trickle sur- soon turns into a deep river. And the place where it flows is it flows into the desert, into the barren wilderness, and all the way down to the Dead Sea. It's going into this barren, deadly place. And every place that this river flows, life bursts forth. Trees, flowers. And that Dead Sea is turned into a place of living things. This is the hope of Easter. This is the hope of the human heart. And see, you and I were made to drink living water. And unless we get Christ at the center of our souls, we're going to die of thirst. Jeremiah, the prophet, God speaking through him, God says this, he says, my people have committed two sins. First, they have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and secondly, they've dug their own wells, broken wells that cannot hold water. Could that be said about you today? What... Water are you drinking? Are you drinking living water, or are you drinking water from wells that you've made yourself? See, and I think the next story following Jesus standing up and saying, I am living water, uh, come to me, The next story, I think, is inserted in this place for a reason because I think it's here to tell us who drinks this water and who doesn't, who gets this water and who doesn't. Because the next story is a story of a woman who's brought before Jesus. I don't know, maybe someone heard some hanky-panky in the tent next to him the night before and then they saw that the, the lady that came out of the tent was not the guy's husband and so they bring this, this woman to Jesus, and, and, but here's what we do know. We know that the people that brought this woman to Jesus, they don't care about the woman, and the only reason they're bringing this woman to Jesus is because they want to destroy him. And the people that are doing this are the most religious, godly, put-together people of Jesus' day. But they want to destroy Jesus. And Jesus knows what's in their hearts. And so as they stand there with stones in their hands, Jesus does something very unusual. Most of you know the story. All of a sudden, he bends down and he takes his finger and he starts doodling in the ground. I was like, what's he doing? And I've always wondered, like, what's he writing? It would be such a great thing to know what he was if he was writing something or drawing something. But if that was important, I would think John would tell us. So then I started to think, is writing in in the dust ever in scripture anywhere? And I couldn't believe it. It's in Jeremiah 17. Jeremiah 17, verse 13 says, Lord, you are the hope of Israel, and all who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust, because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. And with that one act of writing in the the dust... Jesus just told the most religious people of that day, you have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. And with his next act, which is just as profound, with this woman right next to him, he stands. To say, I don't stand with you. I don't stand with people like you. I stand with people like her. And why is Jesus standing with her? I love this scene in The Passion of Christ. It's one of my favorite scenes in, in any movie. It's this story. And you see how this woman's thirst grows for the one who's standing with her. She's thirsty. Does Jesus stand with you? Are you thirsty? How thirsty are you? See this should stop us dead in our tracks. Maim Kaim is for those who are broken, who are in a desert, who are willing to admit I'm thirsty, I'm desperate. And this is why it's so hard for the strong and and the successful, the people who are on top, the people who are on the inside, the ones who think they need nothing because they've done such a great job in their minds of, of manufacturing these wells that they think hold all the water that they need. And they have forsaken the very thing that they do need. Jesus says, if anyone is thirsty, I will give to them myim kaim, living water. And then he says, whoever believes in me, who trusts me, as the scripture has said, springs of living water will gush from within them. And when Jesus says, whoever believes in me or trusts me, this doesn't mean now that you have to muster up all this belief and faith. Um, You don't have to manufacture something you don't have because you already have faith. You already have belief. You you just have to transfer the belief that you have in yourself, the trust that you have put in all your, your cisterns that you've made. You just have to transfer it from that and transfer it to Jesus. David says it in Psalm 63, "O oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body it longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water." And here's the deal when we do this, God makes his home in us. God tabernacles. He pitches his tent in our weakness. His mind, kaim, flows into our brokenness. And like Jesus says to another person, when you drink of me, you will never thirst again. In him, our thirst is quenched forever. And because he is forever, we are forever. And if you want to know what that forever is going to look like, let me end with this. Out of Revelation 7. For I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. From every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and they were celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. No, it doesn't say that. But it does say they were holding palm branches. Who knows? Maybe. Maybe. And then it says, Never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. God, may we be hungry. And desperate. And thirsty. For the water. That you have made us for. And that is to thirst for you. And if that means we have to repent. Of all of our illicit thirsts. And places and people that we're trying to get water. (laughs) So that we can come to you and place our trust in you, Jesus. Give us the grace to do that this morning. Amen.